0: Thanks, Vinny. It's really good to be with you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining in. I think this is week number six. I think that's right. And um, we really would appreciate your feedback now. We wonder how much longer we can we can go, how much longer we should go. And uh, if we were going to keep going, what other topics would you like us to try and cover? Uh, we've got next week where, as, you, as, as Vinnie said, we, we're we going to talk to um, to seven or eight missionary stroke evangelists in every continent of the world. And that's a wonder of, of Zoom, isn't it? Um, and then the week after, we've got a great programme as well. But do we continue after that? We'd really just uh, appreciate any input. We, we do intend to keep going on the Saturday evenings. And I wonder if I could... I urge you to think, who could I invite to come in on Saturday? Stuart Burgess is brilliant. The Mechanical Engineer of the Year. He's a very interesting man, an unusual background, amazing conversion. And what he's accomplished since is, is quite something. And Michael Ott's giving the, the gospel word. It was a very good opportunity to invite uh, people who are scientists or engineers, this sort of thing, to, to hear the gospel. Well, preaching evangelistically, I just want to say one or two things by way of background, because I'm not setting myself up as somebody who knows how to do it. I'm just going to go by some of the principles that I've discovered from the word in helping me to prepare evangelistic talks. I'm very conscious that God uses all types of people. And I'm glad it's not just people like me, otherwise there would not be many conversions. Uh, you can't help but think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you know, converted on that snowy day in Essex, driven into a little Methodist church where the, the preacher whose book didn't turn up and an inarticulate yokel really preached but the lord used what he said and ch spurgeon was wonderfully converted to christ Um, so you know this isn't entirely prescriptive but they're just principles i've discovered from the word Uh, some of you may disagree with some of the things that i say well don't write off everything try and get something from it if you can and also i need to just say that i'm going to assume a godly Christian character. You know, if we've got hours to deal with this subject, we talk about the character of the preacher. But um, there's no place for an Elmer Gantry, if you remember that film from years ago in Christian ministry. We we don't want charlatans. We want sincere people. William Cowper, in his poem, The Task, said, I venerate the man whose heart is warm, whose hands are pure, whose doctrine and whose life coinciding exhibit lucid proof that he is honest. In the sacred cause. Howard says well that if preaching just came from human ability, there would be shortcuts to success, but it doesn't just come from human ability. The power comes from the Lord God himself. So our time with God every day, reading the word, praying, communion with the Lord is absolutely vital. Having said that, It is true. We know it's true that the Lord honours and uses the gifts which he has given to individuals. One of the gifts uh, in the the book of Ephesians is the gift of the evangelist. Um, And God uses as well the skills that we've acquired. And he honours and uses diligent work and preparation. I have a fear, I've got to be honest, that there isn't as much evangelistic preaching today as we think there is. I have a fear that many people who feel they're preaching the gospel, in actual fact, are not. They're giving expositions that are based on the the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as far as communicating, proclaiming the gospel to non-Christians who are listening, I think there is very little of this being done. And if I'm going to be absolutely honest, I think a lot of it is boring. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Okay. American from a century ago, but he said this, I think it's quite amusing. Among the things that provoke thinking, the next best thing to good preaching is bad preaching. I have had even more thoughts during and enduring bad preaching than at other times. And you wonder, don't you, what people are thinking about when we're preaching? You know, what are you thinking about now? And what does somebody in a Sunday service think about if the communication is boring? And it's not engaging and it's not gospel centred. So let's look at some of the principles. I want to read a few verses from the book of Galatians because I'm basing it really on these two or three verses. Galatians chapter three and beginning to read at verse one. And there isn't time now to go into the background and why this is being written. But I think you're aware that the Galatians were being sort of siphoned off to become law law followers again. And, And the Apostle Paul writes to bring them back to salvation through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and he says about them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by he- the hearing of the faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? if indeed it was in vain. So let's look at this this little passage and see what principles we can derive for evangelistic preaching. The first one is this, that evangelistic preaching focuses on Christ and him crucified. Evangelistic preaching focuses on Christ and him crucified. We want to get across to men and women what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. Now, to do that, we have to understand who he is. He's God incarnate, God clothed in humanity, God who's come into our world with the express purpose of going to a cross. And when he was on the cross, he takes on himself like a magnet attracting everything which was opposite and contrary to him. He takes on himself the sin of the world. He takes our condemnation, our penalty. He He takes the punishment, but actually the punishment takes him. It doesn't contaminate him, but he carries the weight of the world's sin. So in every gospel message, evangelistic message, we'll be making a beeline to the cross of the Lord Jesus. And we'll gaze at that cross from different angles and make much of Christ and him crucified. I didn't hear John Stott's um, sermon at, I think it was the year 2000, Keswick, uh, when he went through uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through to 4. But when he was on chapter 2, uh, well, chapter 1 verse 17 through to chapter 2 verse 2, he had an outline that it, I would give my right arm to, to come up with an outline like this. Just brilliant. He spoke first of all about the weakness of the evangel. You know, it talks about the gospel being foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. There's, there's nothing very macho about Christ suffering and dying on a cross. And carrying our sin and being taken and buried. Uh, the foolishness. Uh, yes, there's a weakness in in this message. It isn't something that appeals to to the minds of, of people who are just trying to devise a way back to God. Secondly, from that same passage, he spoke about the weakness of the evangelized. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise are being called. They're just ordinary people. They're sinners. But the gospel, of course, is for sinners. And then he spoke about the weakness of the evangelist, and um, he, he spoke about how the evangelist comes with fear and trembling, and without the eloquence of words, etc. Brilliant outline. This message is not something that you would devise if you were trying to appeal to the philosophers, the thinkers, the intellectual leaders of the world. But nevertheless, it is God's truth. We've heard a lot recently about so-called apologists. One of my big worries about apologists is that um, one can go through so much apparent evidence for the truth of Christianity. And of course, there is tremendous evidence that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God and that Jesus is himself the son of God, that he did die. He did rise from the dead. Tremendous historical evidence. But actually, If we don't explain what the gospel is, we will not have power. God loves to honour his son and the Holy Spirit takes hold of the gospel and applies it to men and women. Do you remember the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter one, verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is not a philosophy to be debated or an idea to be discussed. It is a power to be unleashed. Now, in preaching, There is truth. But as Phillips Brooks, um, the American preacher, not quite probably where most of us are theologically, but nevertheless, uh, a very able man in his great book, The Joy of Preaching, which I think is still in print published by Kriegel. He defines preaching as truth through personality. So God takes an individual personality to communicate a certain body of truths, which really are the gospel now you say well what is that body of truth well you find it in luke's gospel chapter 24 it's interesting in each of the gospels you get the 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 great commission but um uh, the emphasis in each of the four Gospels is slightly different, which I find fascinating. Matthew talks about, you know, going to all the world, preaching the Gospel, teaching people to observe all things that he's commanded, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So preaching and teaching. Mark, of course, go and preach to every creature. John, well, the promise that he's with us. My peace I leave with you. But Luke actually specifies From what Jesus said in the Great Commission specifies what it is we are to be proclaiming if we are to be gospel preachers. It's found right at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter twenty four, verses forty-four and forty-five. This is what we read. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, but all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. Then he said to them, Thus it is written. And thus, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Four basic ingredients. Now it's all based on the Scripture, on what we now call the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and Psalms. Uh, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would suffer, He would die, He would rise from the dead. The need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins and if you go through luke's um, second gospel if you want the book of acts you'll find that time and again he praises he summarizes what peter what paul what others are saying and you'll find those four things keep coming through he died for our sin he rose from the dead there needs to be repentance and then there is forgiveness of sin now when we talk about jesus dying for our sin i wonder what a non-christian understands by that i must have heard that growing up but i didn't understand it until somebody took time to explain to me the hidden work of jesus on the cross that when christ was suffering there god took my sin yes the sin of all the world but he took my sin and laid it on jesus christ he was made sin for me for us he who knew no sin became sin for us All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the evil deeds of us all. I believe we need to, in every gospel message, explain to some extent how he suffered, how he rose, the need to repent and then to receive forgiveness of sin. I remember a friend of mine who may well be watching in now, I don't know, but... um, uh he was going to go to a, a Christian Union carol service, a big one in one of the big universities and a very, very well-known um, speaker. And I said, oh, I've never heard him. I'd love to know what you think of him. And when he came back and we were chatting, he said there were over a thousand students there. And I said, well, what did you think of the speaker? This is what he said. I've never forgotten it. Roger, he's a great communicator. No gospel, but he's a great communicator. Now I think that's happening in many, many, many situations, not just in universities. I think it is very often, but also in churches, etc. And it's a tragedy. I want you to imagine for a moment. Um, this is just fictional. You'll see in a moment that so this is clearly fictional. A man is—I um, don't know—he's been washed overboard. He's—he's he's not far from the shore, but he's drowning in the sea. And the waves are beating this poor man against the the jagged rocks. And, um, yeah, it's very clear that he's he's not going to survive, except somebody walking along a a coastal path, sees him, rips off his jacket, dives in and rescues this, this drowning man. But as he rescues him, he's he's beaten against the rocks it's it's a dreadful case every bone in his body's broken you you get the idea helicopter job he's taken to the hospital and he's in intensive care etc anyway after a few weeks the man who was rescued goes to visit his rescuer and there he is in a hospital bed and of course he's all bandaged and stretched out and you just see his eyes and his nose in his mouth it's, it's yeah terrible situation and and um he, he he talks for a little while and and then the man who's been, um, you know, he's in the bed and, uh, and in a sick state, he just turns to the man he rescues and says, there's some polo mints there, do you want a polo? So he takes a polo and eats the polo, and, and that's it, and eventually he leaves the hospital. When he's going home, he bumps into somebody who says, oh, where have you been? He said, oh, I've just been to the hospital. Oh, right, why? No, 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 nothing wrong with me, I just went to visit somebody. Oh, really, who have you been to visit? Oh, just I just went to visit somebody. Now go on, who? He said, "Well, but I went to visit a man who once gave me a polo mint." There's something incongruous about that, isn't there? It's ridiculous. But it's all too easy when speaking about the gospel. We talk about the joy, the new life, the blessing, the promise of heaven. Uh, the fellowship we've got, the purpose we now have as Christians and, but they're polo mints compared with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered somehow mysteriously. He was cut off from his father in those dark hours. He, he, he was forsaken by his father that we might be forgiven and never forsaken by God. And yet we talk about polo mints. John Wesley, frequently in his journals, would write after a day's preaching, I gave them Christ. And we are to be people who preach Christ and him crucified. If I can quote a Mauritanian proverb, before one cooks one must have meat <laughs> it's true we need to give them the solid meat of the word yeah we we earn the right and we'll come on to that but the first point i want to make and it is very clear in galatians chapter three that evangelist evangelistic proclamation is all about christ and him crucified but secondly evangelistic proclamation is creative Now, you you get this in Galatians 3, unusually, because this is what it says. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Well, that's an interesting phrase. Before whose eyes Christ clearly portrayed among you as crucified? What does this mean? Because certainly the Galatians were not at Calvary. They, they didn't hear the gospel until at least 15 years later when, when the apostle Paul went there and preached. So what does he mean? I believe what he's saying is that when I preached, you saw him. Yeah, yeah, with eyes of faith, but clearly he portrayed the crucifixion and what Jesus was accomplishing as he suffered and died there. So clearly they saw it. Warren Wisby writes, um, in a book that I think you probably have to order from um, uh, 10 of those because it's not freely available over here, but they can get it. And it's worth reading. It's called Preaching and Teaching with Imagination. It's a gem. And for the first third of the book, he goes through the sort of theory of, of imagination, which is interesting in itself. And then he goes through every single book of the Bible and shows how God uses imagination to communicate truth. It's based on a sentence which um, is a sort of foundation for the whole of the book. Listen carefully. People's minds are not debating chambers, but picture galleries. Therefore, preach so you turn people's ears into eyes and they see the truth. I don't like repeating, but I want to repeat that because I think it's a very significant sentence. People's minds are not debating chambers, but picture galleries therefore preach so you turn people's ears into eyes and they see the truth and i believe we need to develop that so that we capture the interest and the imagination of the hearer we don't just blast them with truths but we capture their imagination the most the most unforgettable sermon that i never heard was preached (laughs) um well, my, my son, um, my, my son Ben, who now works with students in New Zealand, had gone to the Creef Conference in Scotland and Alistair Begg was preaching. And he phoned me up afterwards and said, Dad, you've got to hear this outline. And Alistair Begg had uh, started by talking a little bit about Wimbledon and sport and this sort of thing. And he referred to John McEnroe. Now, as soon as we hear the name John McEnroe, we think of one sentence, don't we? You cannot be serious. OK, and um, then alistair beg went to the the story of david and goliath and (laughs) he developed the sermon with three points but the three points were the same wording for each of them you cannot be serious so um david is sent by his father jesse to um uh to, to go and give some food etc to his brothers and he sees them they're supposed to be soldiers but they're all lazing around etc and they're intimidated by Goliath and he asks what's going on and they say oh this, this is nine foot freak mind you if you're my height if you're five foot six you're a freak but we'll leave that this nine foot freak and uh, he's, uh, he's threatening to us and we're all petrified what does David say you cannot be serious so what happens then well he goes to see King Saul and um uh he he, he explains the situation and he says you know this this is crazy you can't allow one man to take on all of god's people i'll go and fight him (laughs) what does saul say you cannot be serious (laughs) and it's lovely isn't it because um David tells about the sling and the bear and the lion, etc. And Saul says, "Well, look, here, here's my here's my armor," and he puts on this armor. But as, as a friend of mine said, David was no good with using heavy metal in battle. Think about it. Anyway, he, he discards the 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 armor, and he goes out and confronts Goliath. And when Goliath sees little David, what does he say? "You cannot be serious." Now, what a brilliant outline! And it's just taking a simple idea and using that to communicate truth, very familiar truth, but doing it in an unforgettable way. David Earnshaw of Inskip Baptist Church said to a group of us just last Thursday on Zoom, on Zoom rather, he said, to be boring in the pulpit is a sin. And I thought about that. Has he the right to say that? We have the most wonderful message on earth that we can be reconciled to the God of all creation. We can know him and be forgiven. We can come to know him in an intimate way and enjoy him forever. What an amazing message. But it is the most urgent message as well. And if we just stand up and boringly communicate truth, it is a sin. And, you know, I'm not going to write this down as a law of the Le- Medes and Persians, but I would beg all preachers here, do not read your sermons. I beg you not to. Now, some people, for example, David Earnshaw, he reads his, but you'd never know he's reading it. But I, I've sat and I thought, this, this is not a sermon. There's no heart. There's no passion. It's just it's just a lecture you're reading. it. it it's just intellectual. There's no heartwarming. There's nothing stirring and surely surely this message should so so fill our hearts that we we can preach in such a way that maybe we need notes as a safety net or to guide us but not to read them we are proclaimers of the most wonderful urgent message everybody we meet and proclaim the gospel to in a hundred years from now will be in eternity in heaven or hell and it is a sin if we communicate the good news boringly I think it's interesting in music I, I'm no musician but I know that in music good music anyway there is both tension and relaxation so there can be real drama in music and then it goes calm and quiet and then back to the drama and I think it's the same with, with, with sermons there needs to be the, the tension the getting across truth but also relax we can't hold people tightly um, elasticated for, for 35 minutes or whatever it is. Now, how do we, how do we preach, preach the word? It is the word that we preach. But it's interesting in history, people have done it in different ways, haven't they? And I don't think we can be prescriptive and say there is only one way to preach a Bible message. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached week by week from a text, a different text. You never knew where it was going to be morning or evening. But wow, saturated with scripture, scripture truth, scripture illusions, scripture claims on people's lives. It was amazing stuff. But he used just a text. Moody loved to preach from biographies and, of course, would tell very moving stories. But again, saturated with the word of God. Billy Graham um, preached topically. Uh, I read a book that was written about Billy Graham just before the Haringey Crusade in 1954. And it was trying to warn the British audience to him, I think. Uh, but it said in every single sermon that Billy Graham preached, he quotes 25 Bible verses, no exceptions. And, and sure enough, he would rattle out the Bible verses and, and all from the authorised version. But he believed that God would take hold of his word and apply it to hearts. John Stott was a, a tremendous expositional evangelist. He preached the gospel very faithfully, but he expounded passages. That's how he did it. And um, I believe in sort of evangelistic exposition. I love stories from the Bible and I take a passage and I try to uh, ex found it but evangelistically carrying the non-christian with me not assuming any background knowledge not assuming they understand my language my vocabulary you know they, they, they often don't so it's making it as simple without being patronizing but as clear and as challenging as i can thirdly evangelistic proclamation oozes love and urgency here is paul pouring out his heart to the galatians oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you? The word bewitched apparently means cast a spell on you. What on earth has happened that you've gone so far far away? He loved these people. Now, he doesn't get out a, a, a stick and beat them. But you can tell he cares for these people and lovingly, but very, very clearly, boldly, he winsomely warns them. I came across a quotation um from a, an old book by a man called John Watson, a Scottish preacher of a hundred odd years, 150 years ago, and he said, "Be kind. You do not know what battles people are fighting." And I was once telling my son about this. My son Ben in New, in New Zealand. He said, "Dad, that wasn't John Watson. That was Plato." <laughs> I no idea who originally said it, but it's a great truth. Be kind. You do not know what battles people are fighting. Young life. Organise every year a um, a sports camp. They get about 200 teenagers in Brecon. Now I'm not really into sport; that's a different matter. But I was asked to speak, and I spoke five nights on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ at this camp. Something happened on the Wednesday night that um, indelibly wrote a lesson in my mind because a young guy, a lovely guy, and and he may be listening now, and I hope he doesn't mind me using him as an illustration came up to me and he said roger can can we chat he was 15 years of age and um we just sat down there were lots of people all around us but we began to talk and and then he just burst into tears and i said what 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 is the matter and he said roger 11 years ago you buried my dad and i knew what his christian name was and i said Is your name so-and-so and and -and so-and-so with his surname? He said, yes. I said, oh, wow. Well, I did. Yes, I I spoke at his funeral. And then this young man said to me, I miss him so much and I don't know anything about him. So I turned and said to him, let me tell you, he was one of the loveliest Christians I ever met. And he'd be so thrilled that you were here now. But I went away and thought, I had no idea. That, that young man was in this crowd of teenagers we don't know to whom we're speaking but let's always remember that people those we share the gospel with whether in the open air in a church or a camp or whatever people are not our enemies they are as we once were and we want them to be as we are now we learn from the lord jesus here don't we he looks over jerusalem and with, with pain in his heart he says oh jerusalem jerusalem how often i would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you would not and actually i missed a little bit out but it's a significant part oh jerusalem jerusalem you who killed the prophets and one could add at that moment and who is was about to crucify me nevertheless how often i would have gathered you his desire Is for men and women. We we read in the scripture, don't we? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord. We read in the scripture, God wills that none should perish. God does not create people to send them to hell. God creates people and loves them and longs for them to come to him for forgiveness. The heart of God is to save men and women, young, old, people a million miles away from him, those who are brought up to to understand about him. If I understand the Bible correctly, and I think it is very clear, Jesus came into the world for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. You know, he's a propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He came to the world for everyone. He died for everyone. He invites all to come to him. He commands all to repent and he'll welcome all who come to him. I find it very hard to see how a person can have a passion for the lost if they don't believe those simple truths. And maybe that's why passion for the lost has gone, because there's been a shift away from that, away from the scripture onto humanly devised systems, which then say, oh, no, no, no God's love for some people is greater than for other people. And, and they, they anyway, John Berich. Uh, do you know anything about John Berich? He was um, he was converted. Six years into being the vicar of Everton near Bedford, and he was a bit of a character. I um, he, he wrote lots of hymns, they're very quaint and quirky, but I, again, I love them. But I mustn't go down that line. And um, John Berich, who was greatly used to the Lord, nevertheless he said, "Begin with ripping up the audiences, and Moses will lend you a carving knife." Now Charles Simeon, the Cambridge. Um, vicar who had such and still does have such great influence on preaching Charles Simeon began following that advice but he soon saw the folly of and I'm going to quote of preachers who act like butchers and much as I admire John Beridge and the Lord used John Beridge, I believe Charles Simeon was right. We love them in. That's uh, the title of a book about the evangelist D.L. Moody. Uh, love them in, and I, I think that's great. That doesn't mean that there can't be earnestness. And and passion. No, no, I long for people to be saved. And that has to come across. I can't just stand there and in a cool, calculated way, explain ABC of the gospel. I I desire these people to be converted. I read recently the the story of John Wesley, who was with a young minister and um, they were working in London together. And they were outside Billingsgate Fish Market when they heard two women get involved in a real scrap, shouting at each other, arguing with each other, etc. And the young minister turned to John Wesley and said, this is so unsavoury, let's just go. Do you know what Wesley said? He said, no, stay and learn how to preach. In other words, those women really meant what they were saying and they were, you've got the idea. There needs to be passion. We we love people. We we ooze love, and there is an urgency. But we're not to go over the top. And um, of course, while we preach, we're constantly looking to God Himself to do His work. The Holy Spirit taking hold of the the seed and bringing forth fruit. So there's a prayerfulness in our proclamation and a dependence upon God the Holy Spirit to do His work while we're proclaiming the Word. Fourthly evangelistic preaching connects with non-christians now clearly you know the apostle paul had been in galatia and he preached and people had been converted uh, this only do i want to learn from you did you receive the, the holy spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith it connects if you go through the new testament there are well and the old testament there are lots of um sort of pictures of soul winners of christians who are being used by god in evangelism i I can't go through them all it's a long list and um but here are some we're described as fishermen jesus said come follow me i'll make you fishers of men we're described as ambassadors we are therefore christ's ambassadors as though god were making his appeal through us we're witnesses for we cannot help speaking about the things that we've seen and heard We're sowers and harvesters. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're shepherds. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. We're rescuers. We're to snatch others from the fire and save them. We're spiritual parents. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, says Paul we're the priests of god that's an interesting one isn't it to be a minister of christ jesus with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of god romans 15 verse 16 but you get the same idea in 1 peter 2 as well we're soldiers the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world on the contrary they have divine power to demolish strongholds we're heralds of the king preach or herald the word we're stewards. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So I say again, we have the most wonderful and urgent message. Well, let's communicate it as, as recognizing that, wow, God has entrusted this message to us. I love the fact that both in Scripture, you get both in Scripture, you get the idea that God is working with us and we get the idea that we're working with him. It's a a lovely marriage of of us serving this master who condescends to work through us and with us. And we're reminded, aren't we, in Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, that's an interesting question, because that leads us then to think, what do we do when the vast majority of people nowadays do not come into our church to hear the word. We 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 put on some great programs in church, but but the vast majority still don't come. Even if we get a big packed church, it's a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the population round about. Well, we do need to be going out, don't we? I'm sure we're all thinking how do we use Zoom in the future, and and I'm sure we should. But we need to be going out. Um, I really thank the Lord that w- w- when I was young. I got involved with the Young Life Campaign in Leeds and what a zealous group they were. They had three open air meetings a week and then they had one major evangelistic uh, event every month and they did a serious one or two week mission every two years. Uh, it was remarkable. And then they had a weekly uh, teaching meeting and then they also had a weekly Bible study and prayer meeting. And these were people with full time jobs, but the zeal or passion there was never any sense of we're too tired for this we 'd have days of prayer and fasting. We were just teenagers, but oh, we were swept along with the tide of um, enthusiastic evangelism, and it burned deeply in us but <sighs> small, small reflection of what was going on in the book of Acts. The apostles went into the synagogues at least 10 times in the book of Acts. We read of them preaching in the synagogues. The synagogues weren't particularly friendly places for them. But nevertheless, they went there and preached Christ. What happens when Paul arrived in the stately home of the proconsul Sergius Paulus on the island of Paphos? He preached the gospel, didn't he? And uh, when he goes to a prayer meeting um, by the riverside in Philippi, what does he do? He explains the gospel. But, of course, we all know what happened to Paul in Philippi. He was imprisoned. He was put in a prison cell with his friend Silas, and at midnight they were singing. But they'd obviously spoken about the gospel because eventually the prison guard came trembl- trembling to the prisoners. <laughs> it should have been the other way around, really. came trembling and says, what must I do to be saved? And um, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So in a prison cell, preach the gospel in a marketplace at the areopagus he preached the uh, the gospel sorry and then at the areopagus he preached the gospel in the home of titus Justus in chapter 18 verse 7 and the home of priscilla and aquila in um, chapter 18 verse 26 he preached the gospel he goes to the lecture hall of uh, uh, of Tyrannus in ephesus and what does he do he preaches the gospel he um, uh, there's a crowd rioting, baying for his death, his blood in Ephesus. So what does he do? He preaches the gospel to them. And, uh, then eventually, of course, he's presented to the Sanhedrin in Ephesus. Does, does he think, oh, just be wise, be quiet? No, no, no. He, he explains the gospel to them because it's a wonderful message and it's an urgent message and he wants everybody to understand. He's, um, he goes to the palace of Felix and he shares the gospel. Every letter of invitation which has been sent to me from Buckingham Palace as an invitation for me to go and meet the Queen, I think must just have got lost in the post. But (laughs) if ever one did come, and I don't think it will, I would like to be able to explain the gospel to to the Queen or Prince Charles or Prince William or whoever. Whoever, Uh, he he goes to the, the court before Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. And he tells them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on the deck of a ship that's sinking. He turns to the captain and the crew members and he talks to them about the word of God. And then, of course, the book of Acts ends with him being in, um, in house arrest in Rome. And again, what does he do? He preaches the gospel from morning till evening. And he goes through the Old Testament scriptures and he preaches Christ what a challenge what an example and and what he was proclaiming was not we must give porridge to the poor or we must save the whale or we must give flip-flops to the inebriated on a friday or a saturday night at one two in the morning they all may be very varied and good things to do but he was about making much of the lord jesus christ that the church has been commended for its community programs and and praise god for that but but it's one thing to help somebody, somebody physically, even mentally and socially today, but if they're lost eternally, we've made a poor bargain, haven't we? And it makes us commendable to people and we, we have their, their smile, but do we have the smile of God? Praise God for everybody working in the NHS and there are many Christians there and working in healing the sick. We, we thank God for all of that. And yes, we will do our best to help in any way we can at the moment. There is an emergence. We accept that. But actually, the greatest work of all is to proclaim the gospel. And I know we talk a lot about sharing the gospel, but I read a book just recently, Evangelism in Exile, where the, the writer, an the American writer who's worked in um, a tough area in the Middle East he really says it's not about sharing it's about proclaiming declaring the gospel he says when you share you're sharing with somebody who wants to hear but actually we proclaim we declare and very often it's to people who don't want to hear and I was challenged by the book because I think of my neighbors you know I I live in a terrace house got that neighbor's very very close to me do i just wait for the moment when they raise spiritual things or is this message so urgent i need to precipitate to start the conversation and then fifthly you'll be pleased to know the last point that i i want to drive this home evangelistic proclamation appeals for response This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun, etc.? Clearly, he urged these people to respond to what they were hearing. But that has become unpopular these days. And again, I think it's something to do with the offense of the cross. I I, I know that people have abused appeals and have manipulated. We're not out to manipulate, but we are out to. To proclaim the gospel in such a way that we've explained what a person must do to receive forgiveness. says, what must I do? And, And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our appeal is not just sign up for a course i i'm I'm all in favor of um, christianity explored i'm all in favor of the stranger um on the on the road to emmaus course or identity they're great courses i like those i am all in favor of uh, the word one-to-one one-to-one bible studies and they have their place and i would encourage you to use them i really would but there comes a moment where we don't say join a course but you need to believe you need now to call upon the name of the lord and be saved, d. L Moody, of course learned this very very shockingly and unforgettably when he preached one Sunday evening, and there was clearly a move of god 's spirit amongst the audience and He said to them, "Look, come back next week, and i 'll explain what you must do to get right with God." But that night there was a Chicago fire, and many, many, many of the people who heard him perished, and he learned his lesson. I learned it. I was a school teacher in um, in Batley, in West Yorkshire, and uh, I was teaching once. I remember it very, very clearly. I was teaching on the the parable of the the rich fool. I'll pull down my barns, build bigger barns, eat, drink, be merry. And God said, "You fool! For that tonight you'll you'll die." We read it from the Bible. We talked about it. Eventually, oh, I took questions, of course, and eventually I gave them some work. I had to do eight cartoon pictures to illustrate this parable. And uh, and, and and a guy, I, I can. I could describe him now and I could tell you his name, but he just came up to me. And uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, sir, how can I know I'm a Christian? I used to run in the school lunchtime just a 10, 12, sometimes 15 minute Bible study every day. And pupils could come and we'd do little Bible study together. It was was a wonderful time. And um, he used to come. And I remember turning to him. This wasn't his name, but uh, I make it up. I said, Smith, why don't you go home and ask the Lord Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour? I've always regretted saying that. I went home. I didn't think any more about about it. The next morning I arrived at school and we were high up on the hill and I could hear the sound of sirens in the valley down below. And eventually, in the morning break, I used to help in the school shop. Somebody came up to me and he just said, sir, he said, Smith's dead. A real badly way of saying it, Smith's dead. He'd just walking along the pavement down at the bottom and a lorry whose brakes failed crushed into him, crushed him against the wall. His last words on earth were, my mum will kill me when she sees I've torn my new trousers. He came from a very poor background and it sort of haunted me. And I said to myself, I will never again say to anybody, why don't you go home? And I've always say, do you know, right now you could ask Jesus to forgive you, be your Lord and Saviour and offer to pray. Now, if they say no, I'm not going to force them. Uh, I've known manipulations where I've seen, well, one very well-known preacher who's really gone off the rails now. But I remember him in a big meeting in, in Northern Ireland with hundreds of teenagers. He he spoke and then he asked everyone to bow their head and he said um just pray this prayer with me and then he said if you've prayed the prayer just put up your hand and then those who have put up your hand stand and then those who have stood come to the front i felt it was manipulation of young teenagers we're not doing that it's it's using deceitful means to do that but we are urging people to trust christ to to come to in fact here are some of the sort of commands that there are throughout the Bible. I can give you a chapter and verse of them all if you want. We are urged to come to Christ. We're urged to look to Christ. We're urged to believe on Christ. We're urged to receive Christ. We're urged to call on him. We're told to choose you this day whom you'll serve. The great sermon at Pentecost, save yourselves. Is what Peter said. So we, we proclaim and as we proclaim, we pray. And as we proclaim and pray, we appeal and we're asking God to do something in the hearts and lives of those who've heard. Let me end with this. Um, verse that you may not easily note uh, if you're just reading through the scripture because it's obviously able to be translated in different ways but it's from the book of psalms but you'll know it if you know handel's messiah so i'll quote from the authorised version which is what handel's messiah sets to music the lord gave the word great was the company of the preachers that's that that wonderful um sentence the lord gave the word great was the company of the preachers and i'm well aware that uh, tonight's sort of session has been targeted on those who are preaching evangelistically but the principles are there for all of us involved in personal work and i would urge and encourage every one of us to be out there i know we can't at the moment because of lockdown but out there making the gospel known every preacher pastor should go into the open air and preach the gospel um, i've often wondered why why we don't do more of that say in stands in the, in the parks in the summer instead of having our services just tucked away behind four walls go out there and uh and preach the gospel perhaps an open air park service but uh but then there needs to be regular preaching in the, in the pedestrian precincts on the beaches in the town squares etc we we've, we've i don't know we've become very insular friend of mine phoned me up some time ago and he said roger our church is celebrating its centenary 100 years of keeping the gospel in these four walls that is very sad no we want to be out there proclaiming the gospel let's keep to christ crucified and risen call people to repent and receive forgiveness for their sin and all to the glory of god amen Well, thank you ever so much, Roger. Uh, that's an awful lot for us to digest and take in. And I trust our cogs are working and those questions are flying into Janice. Now, um, a little later on,
1: we're going to have breakout groups. Uh, but don't forget, as it's come up on the screen now, um, our next event is on Saturday with Stuart Burgess.
0: And then the following week, Evangelism from Different Continents of the World. And
1: we'll be interviewing and talking to missionaries and people involved in mission abroad. So um, lovely to have you. Now, questions. So
0: Janice, over to your good self.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, obviously gripping and very memorable because the first question is, can you remind us what the title of point three was, please?
0: <laughs> so I didn't quite catch up. What do you say? Can, can I remind you what?
1: Point three. What was? Oh, point three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Is that where you went off for your cup of tea? <laughs> evangelistic proclamation oozes love and urgency.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Any, anybody else want me to? <laughs> <laughs> um, how would you distinguish between gospel-centered sermons and evangelistic sermons, and is there a season for each? Yeah,
0: I don't know. A gospel centered sermon. I'm sure he's an evangelistic sermon. And I think for those of us who are older, we'll remember when the, the, the Sunday evening gospel service was a very normal thing to do. Um, There was a sort of move away from that because they felt that non-Christians were not coming. And of course, then that becomes a vicious circle, doesn't it? Because if you're not having um, um, the gospel preached, then people aren't inviting non-Christians to come. And so it's spiraled down. I think we've lost out big time on that because I think it was a very, very good thing for Christians to be constantly reminded of the truths of the gospel. And actually, as they're reminded, it's equipping them to be able to share those truths with non-Christians. So to my mind, um, uh, a gospel-centered sermon or an evangelistic sermon is one where we are majoring on these basic truths of what it means to be a Christian, the importance of becoming a christian but it's done in such a way that the person who's biblically illiterate can understand and follow though obviously it needs the lord to be at work in their hearts as well but um it's so easy to to sort of just fall into jargon and uh, evangelical sort of lingo that we understand and we assume that others do but they often just don't
1: Is there not a danger of the imagery used being remembered rather than the point of the message?
0: To be honest, I I would feel thrilled if people remembered anything, (laughs) because I talk to people two or three days after a Sunday service. And I, I regularly and those who know me will know I do this. Oh, what did he preach on on Sunday morning? Oh, now you ask me. They have no idea. And if if they remember anything, I sort of praise the Lord. I really do. Well, it, it's what, Tuesday. Can you tell me what your preacher preached on on Zoom on Sunday morning? Come on, Janice, can you?
1: Psalm 96.
0: Oh, well done. <laughs> the trouble is we can't test that out, can we? But anyway, well done. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> little help, but the, so if people remember just the imagery, hey, let's pray that that imagery will get through to people as well. There is a danger. Um, Spurgeon, in his great book, Lectures to My Students, um, he says that um, a sermon is a bit like a building, but it needs windows in it to let in some, some light. So they're the illustrations. But he said, but don't build a greenhouse. It's not all illustrations. And so we, we are out to preach the word, but a good story can grab somebody. And and keep their attention. I also think you can't force you. I'm not the type normally just to tell jokes, but I know I am a bit cheeky as well. And I use humor. To keep people's attention. I'm, I'm sure humor is a gift from God. But then there's always the danger. You know, I could name um, a preacher I think is absolutely brilliant. But once in a while, the humor just gets the better of him. And you come away and think, oh, well, all we got was jokes. That's no good either. It, it's the word. It's Christ centered ministry. But we're, we're seeking all the time to grab and keep their attention so that we can uh, explain these wonderful truths to them.
1: Another question on that subject then we, we understand being engaging and stirring etc how do you distinguish between entertaining and winsome
0: we, well we, yes it's a good question um winsome i i just think we're not out to condemn people we 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 love them in we we long for them to be converted it's um it it's very easy as evangelicals to become angry With people who don't agree with us religiously. And it's a it's a tendency that happens. We are very tribal um, uh, as far as evangelicals are concerned. We've had emails just starting this course on what do you believe about this? And it's such tribalism and uh, winsomeness says no no we love men and women god loves them we love them and and therefore we'll be gentle and we'll be kind and if i'm in a conversation with somebody and i begin to feel like i'm losing my rag a little, time to stop but um um entertainment is different entertainment is when we get the glory to ourselves entertainment is when we're not imparting eternity in people's minds and thoughts we're just tickling them to to have them on our side i went to an open air carol service a year last christmas and it was an hour and a quarter um, and there was a good little crowd there um, mostly from people from the church but there were others there as well we had a, a carol and a message a carol and a message for a one and a quarter hours and all the man who led it did was tell jokes they weren't even particularly funny and do you know i don't know how he managed it he did an hour and a quarter he never mentioned the name jesus how can you do that at a carol service I, I don't get it and that's entertainment he's trying to make friends with the crowd you know <laughs> It's not the way it works. It's not what God honors. God does not honor skeletons. It's not skeletons. (laughs) Um, I've lost the word now. The um, the spiral thing you slide down. What's the word? Helter skelters, not skeletons, but maybe that's a better word. Helter skelters in cathedrals or golf courses in cathedrals. That is not the way to win the lost. We preach Christ and Him crucified. My motto is that that verse really, one Corinthians two two. I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I would I would feel ashamed, embarrassed, and disappointed with myself if I preached without explaining. How Christ loved us and died for us to those non-Christians who were there.
1: Next question, sort of following on from that, or you may have already answered it actually. How do we love them in then as D.L. Moody did?
0: Yeah. Uh, read a biography of D.L. Moody. It will bless you immensely. It, it, I don't know. There was something. Oh, do you know <laughs> he was reading a Bible passage, <laughs> And he came across... Because he wasn't well-educated at all. And he came across a word that he couldn't pronounce. Do you know what he did? He'd come up to that word and then he'd just give a little exposition, a little chat about what he'd just read. And then he'd start reading again, having skipped that word <laughs> so he didn't have to read it. <laughs> he he'd say about him, he was the only man who could pr- pronounce the word Daniel in a monosyllabic way. <laughs> he, he, he just... He, he was not educated, but he loved the Lord and he loved people and he longed for them to be converted. And um, I, I think we love them in when we get involved with them and we meet them and we spend time with them. If if my view of of people of a different religion is seen entirely on the television screen, I probably won't love them. If I spend time and talk with them and seek to serve them, I find I begin to love them. Because if, if, if God loves them and he by his Holy Spirit is dwelling in me, then surely I would love them. And I think if we've grown cold, we need to get involved with reaching non-Christians again.
1: From Moody to Billy Graham, why do you think mm. Billy Graham was so successful at evangelistic preaching? <laughs>
0: I would recommend going on YouTube and watching and listening to Billy Graham. Um, um, every single ser- I've I've heard dozens and dozens of Billy Graham sermons and um I I think I've read <laughs> I I worked it out once. I I think I've read about 8000 pages of books about Billy Graham because I had to give a a one and a half hour talk about it once. I really researched it anyway. um, He preached Christ and him crucified. There's no doubt about it. You'll never find a message of Billy Graham where he doesn't explain the cross. Now he tells the story. I heard it once on a radio program. of decision, where he was preaching. If I remember correctly, it was in Dallas, but I may be wrong there. And um, uh, he got into the car. He was going back to his hotel with whoever. And he just turned to the man, maybe who was driving him or he was driven with him, and said, "There was something wrong tonight. There was something wrong." And um, and Billy Graham, I think, had a humility to to learn. This man turned and said, "Billy." You did not preach the cross. And he said, I learned that day I must always explain the cross. I think that was a lot of it. I think his total dependence on the word of God, his preaching of the word of God, his use of statistics was dreadful, his use of illustrations I think, were not always great. He told jokes, he thought, oh Billy Gray. that took five minutes and that was a waste of time. But when he got onto the gospel and then he dared to appeal to people, one has to say as well, there was um, uh, there was massive money put into the Billy Graham organization so they could do things on a huge scale. And their advertising, etc., was something we, we could never imagine these days. You know, they would they would spend vast fortunes on advertising and the Lord used it. Um, and then whenever Billy Graham preached, somebody once said it was the most prayed for spot in all the world. Because all over the world, people would be praying for Billy Graham when he was preaching in wherever it was. And I think there was something in that. But it was his boldness, his fear, fearlessness about preaching Christ and the need to get right with God. And and you have to say as well, unlike some of these televangelists nowadays, I'm sure there are some good ones. But unlike some of them, he, he wasn't just begging, um, give me your money sort of thing. It, there was a there was a sort of. Integrity. I think he made mistakes in, in who he worked with. I think he was too ecumenical, and um, he wasn't wise there. That's a different issue. The fact is the Lord used him very, very greatly, and I thank God for him. My wife was converted through Billy Graham.
1: The gospel doesn't change, we know that. How do we stop evangelistic preaching being predictable and samey?
0: Well, I think by using imagination and creativity and, um, you know, you cannot be serious thinking, how do I get this message uh, across in a way that is appealing? And um, that takes hard work. Um, but, um, yeah, but the Bible is always going to be relevant. Um there are one or two books I I use and I find very helpful. Um, now Jonathan I know sells this one in big numbers and I'm glad he does. It's it's by Henrietta Mears and it's called What the Bible is All About. And um, um, Billy Graham used to give this away in the thousands. That's where I got my first copy, uh, but it fell apart with a bit of <laughs> bit of use. But it was a great book. Then I bought another one. I've used that so much that fell apart, and I've now got my third edition. I regularly go to it. And I was thinking, I'd like to preach on the book of Joel because there was a pandemic for, the, well, certainly a disaster for the land. And it wasn't COVID-19. It was um, a plague of locusts came over the land, devoured the whole land. I thought I'd like that's very relevant for where we're at today. So I went to Henrietta Mears. What does she say? And you get about eight pages on um, on every book of the Bible, she was so helpful and she made a, um, a, a book written hundreds of years ago come alive in a way that right now I can then say, how does this fit in? And so I think there are some tools of certain books. Um, uh, I, I use um, I use this. I know Jonathan has this at times. Uh, Preaching from the types and metaphors of the Bible, Benjamin Keach. I, th- I think this is a few hundred years old. When did he live? I've forgotten. But you know, I regularly go to this book and get thoughts and ideas and and pictures, etc. So it's getting the right tools. Um, um, a. M. Hodgkin's Christ in all the Scriptures is a total gem for ideas. Um, and, and so, don't just go to a, a an academic commentary. And regurgitate what it says in the pulpit. No, it has to, by all means, use that as a background if you want. But we, we take this written word and we make it as relevant as it really is to listeners today and the world in which they're living. But that takes work, creativity, imagination, Um, And get that book, Audric, from 10 of those, of course, and uh, Preaching and Teaching with Imagination by Warren Wiersbe, even if it takes a few weeks to get here. There are so many seed thoughts in that book. It's remarkable.
1: Um, There's a few more questions that we haven't got time for, but perhaps people can stay around and chat after the prayer time if they want to. Um, But I'd like to just finish with one question that says, how do you prepare your heart before speaking? Um, I'm not particularly a greatly
0: (laughs) spiritual man like that so I'm probably going to be a disappointment in answering that question I have my daily quiet time so I I spend time every day reading the word and praying when I prepare a message I pray and ask the Lord to help me and guide me and if I'm struggling I cry out to the Lord Lord help I'm just not getting anywhere here and then um, once I've got a message um, I, I then I go to, a, say, a church and I'm going to preach and I pray in the morning, Lord, will you just show me? Because you know, I'm a bit long in the tooth, are I? So I've got hundreds now of evangelistic messages. I just pray, Lord, will you show me what is the right message um, tonight, usually, or the morning? Will you just lay it on my heart. And I always find he does. Though on one or two occasions, I shouldn't really admit this, I have started a sermon uh, and then thought, oh, this isn't the right one. And I've been <laughs> switched. But you've got to remember, I am preaching day by day. And it is um, it, well, normally I am anyway. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more familiar. But before every sermon, wherever I preach, I always pray, Lord, I know that without you, I can do nothing. But I do want something that counts for eternity to be accomplished today. Therefore, Lord, please, would you take hold of what I'm about to say and use it? Uh, to speak to men and women. And it's this sense of total dependence. And if ever, and it doesn't always happen by any means, if ever at the end of a sermon, somebody comes up and says something nice about the sermon, I learned a big lesson from Corrie Ten Boom, who said that very often people come and say nice things to her at the end of her talks. And she, she thought, what do I do with these? And this is this was her answer, and I like to try and do the same. She said, I regard every compliment that's given to me as a rose and at the end of every day i give to the lord a bouquet of roses i think that's rather nice now usually i've only got a petal but lord (laughs) here's the petal and uh, if anything was accomplished thank you lord and it's all about you let the name of roger cars will perish and decrease
1: but let the name of the lord jesus increase and be glorified